Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be here this morning to learn from you, from your scriptures and what they teach us in our day-to-day lives. You've given them to us for our instruction, for our profit, and we are grateful that you've spoken to us through your word and continue to speak to us today. Speak in our hearts and speak in our minds. Use um, the words that I give today to be better than what I can provide them, but to be uh, given by you to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I don't know if you've realized it or not, but we've been spending the summer in the Psalms this year. You've heard several different Psalms throughout uh, the Sunday school hour. Uh, Jeff Solman, uh, I don't think actually in coordination with the Sunday school idea, actually decided to preach through a number of the Psalms from the pulpit this July. He'll end that up today. Uh, Next week, I'm going to talk on a specific psalm, and I think Jeff is going to pick up some more in the month of August, uh, preaching through or speaking through the psalms here in Sunday School as well. Thanks to Russ and Breck, who have also been uh, teaching us through the psalms as well. Today, I wanted to to focus our attention, though, uh, just beyond an individual psalm and giving us something to think about in terms of its structure itself. So this is a little less devotional. Boy, it really does still bother me that this room is divided like it is. I'm sorry, my OCD really kicks in when I start teaching up here. When it, it's just, There's no good way to do this. No, it's, it's off balance over here. It's, just, it's bad. The whole thing is bad. Um, but uh, I wanted to talk about the structure of the book of Psalms, give you sort of an overview of the Psalms as the scriptures, uh, where, where it fits in the, the scriptures itself, the authors that are behind it, the, the type of genre that it is, and how uh, the, it structures a, in a way to support a singular theme. And in doing so, I want to do it in a way that is, I hope, less nuts and bolts and sort of dry and rote but much more that will help you as you begin to uh, prepare to your own devotional life and your, your, uh, your daily life. Uh, the Psalms have been called, and I think rightly so, they've been called the worship manual of a chosen people who express their future hope in a Messiah that is grounded in the past faithfulness of God. Or in short, it's just a worship manual for the people of God. Uh, each one of the Psalms point in their own way to a sovereign king, a lasting Messiah, who though typified through David and some of the other uh, people we see in the Psalms, uh, he is far greater. This lasting Messiah is far greater than anybody we read about in the Psalms. And so my goal this morning is to help us understand the structure of the book and how it contributes to the canon of Scripture itself so that you can use this worship manual to its fullest. So sort of like a a real manual, not not something like you get at Ikea, but an actual manual that you can read. Uh, As we see the aggregate parts that make up the entire machine, I hope that it will also provide you the ability to see how each part of the Psalms contributes to our worship of our God. And so that's that's the goal of the lesson today as we look at the form, structure, and substance of of the Psalms. If you don't like that, come back next week. We'll do an individual Psalm and we'll be much more devotional and and, happy in in that regard. But let's look at the place of the Psalms in, in the whole of Scripture. Uh, think about how it fits into the entire structure of the Bible. Maybe like you, when I was a kid, it was easy to find the, the Psalms because you were supposed to just put your finger in the middle of the Bible and pretty much you're going to hit the Psalms. And so we kind of know where it lands in the book of the Bible. Uh, but we also need to understand why it's in that, that section of the Bible. We know most obviously that it's housed in what we call the Old Testament. Uh, but we could rush right past that without truly appreciating how important it is that it's inside of this thing we call the Old Testament. So let's not rush through that. There's a reason why we have a division between the Old and the New Testaments, and it's not simply due to the age of the two sections. One's old and one's new, although that's probably an easy way for us to understand those things. The Old Testament, as Miles Van Pelt, a a theologian, explains, he says it's fundamentally the gospel promised beforehand. It's hard to put that in the, the, the leaves of your page of the Bible, but it's easier to say Old Testament than the, the gospel promised beforehand. But in a very real way, the Old Testament really serves in that way. It tells us the gospel before we get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is correct, and I think it is, then roughly two-thirds of the book that we call the Bible is just simply prologue to the gospel itself. It is not merely an ancient codex of a defunct religion that is given to a, a, a cultish people called the Israelites, but it's actually the history, the wisdom, and the witness of the one true and living God lived out in black and white in the pages of the Old Testament. Miles Van Pelt artfully summarizes how the entire Old Testament connects through the, 
to the new through Jesus. This is a longer quote, but it is, it is so beautiful. He says this, Jesus is the seed of the woman who has come to crush the seed of the serpent, and he is the offspring of Abraham who fulfills every covenantal promise. Uh, Jesus is also the better covenant mediator, the true and better temple, and the true and better sacrifice. Jesus came to keep and fulfill the law of God. Jesus Christ is the true and better Israel who was totally and completely obedient to the law of Moses, earning the righteousness that we could not earn for ourselves. He is the seed of David, according to the flesh, the king of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is also the true and better prophet. Not only did he execute the ultimate prophetic lawsuit, but he bore its punishment for those who would receive his earned righteousness. Jesus Christ is the true and better wisdom, the ultimate praise of God, the very wisdom of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you would understand the Old Testament, you must come to embrace Jesus, his kingdom, and the covenantal nature of his word and his work. So in other words, the Old Testament from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi is an expression of Jesus himself. Uh, We would not be suddenly surprised by the arrival of Jesus in Matthew because we have seen him, heard him, and longed for him in every page up to his, leading up to his arrival on this earth that we see in the Old Testament. Our Old Testament is well organized, and it, and in fact, mirrors the New Testament structure as both outline God's covenantal blessings for his people, where Genesis provides a prologue to our, uh, our Old Testament. The re- book of the Revelation gives us a covenantal epilogue. Uh, where the books of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they explore the outline of the covenant of God uh, that he makes with his people, the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they outline the new covenant that's found in Christ himself, and so they mirror one another. In the same way, the prophets in the section of the Old Testament, that outlines the history of God's covenant faithfulness and his long-suffering kindness in the face of a very unfaithful people. In much the same way, that reflects is reflected in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, a, a covenantal history of a new covenant that's unfolding before our very eyes on the pages of the New Testament. It's in, this, in the last category of the New Testament that we find the Psalms echoed as well. Uh, it's, it's a section of the scriptures that we call the writings in the Old Testament, or sometimes the book of truth. And so where you have the epistles in the New Testament, you have the writings in the Old Testament. Uh, These 12 books of the Old Testament, they're very practical books. Uh, They help the people understand how they are to live, both in the promised land while they're there, as well as how to obey God while they are in exile, in much the same way that the epistles help us in the New Testament keep uh, our understanding of how we are to live and think as we await Christ's return in the land of our own exile right now. Within the writings, we then find the Psalms. The Psalms themselves, we've gone from the Bible, the Testaments, down to the writings, and now down specifically into the Psalms. These are what you might call a poetic commentary on the law and how to live by it as we wait for our Messiah. So that's, that's taken us from the broad right down to the very specific. Let's look at who authored the Psalms and the, the genre. I, I keep on using the word genre because it makes me feel very smart to say the word genre in any kind of Sunday school lesson, but just another way of saying what kind of book, are we, what kind of literature are we studying? Every one of the books of the Bible has its own specific level of, of genre and literature, and we're supposed to interpret the book as a book as we read it here. Uh, but let's talk, look at authorship first. It's, it's interesting that most books are written by one person, right? Moses is given the, the Pentateuch. He writes each one of the books there. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may be written by some individual person that you can probably figure out who authored those, right? Even the, the Chronicles are written down by individuals, and they're inspired to have those very things. But the Psalms, they span over a thousand years of history and have a multitude of different authors. I I just find this very fascinating. Uh, Moses authors Psalm 90, which is perhaps the oldest of our Psalms. In Psalm 137, the psalmist begins by writing, by the waters of Babylon. So we begin to understand that the, the author in that context was sitting by the waters of Babylon, perhaps in exile, uh, waiting for the uh, return to Israel. So we know that the Psalms are, are going a long way back in the history of Israel, but we also know of the more famous authors that we sometimes hear about in the subscriptions, uh, superscriptions of each one of the, of the Psalms. David is perhaps the most famous of all the psalmists. I think we almost immediately go to him as one of the, the psalmists. Uh, Asaph would be another one of, of, of the authors. The Sons of Korah, which is a fascinating study in and of itself to figure out who those guys are. 
but as we consider authorship, it's interesting to note that not only that the book has no singular author, like Moses authored the Pentateuch or Luke, Luke authored the book of Acts, uh, none of them were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit per se. Rather, and hear me when I say this, when the ancients assembled the scriptures, these psalms, of all the possible psalms that have ever been written from now and in, 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 you know, all the way back to the time of Moses, these were specifically chosen. Uh, Mark Futato helps us make sense of this. He says this, The individual psalms were written by many different people in many different places over a long stretch of time, and most of them were originally composed as human words to God. But the superintendency of this Holy Spirit, but by the superintendency of the Holy Spirit, these words to God were transformed into God's word to humans in order to instruct them in how to experience the abundant life in all of life's varied circumstances, whether the depths of despair or the heights of joy. I, I love that phrase, right? That um, these human words to God were transformed into God's word to humans. So there was no loss here of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It, it just simply came in a different measure than what we might typically understand the scriptures to be written down as. Though these are, though, written for your benefit to help guide you through, uh, through the depths of despair and the heights of joy and to experience the obedience and the faithfulness of our steadfast love of our Lord. So here in the Psalms, we have words of worship written down by multiple authors to guide our worship of the one and the true king. And like any good writing, the Psalms occupy this specific genre, right? Uh, this is, uh, much of scripture is composed as, as prose. You, you can look at uh, different parts of scripture as apocalyptic writing as well. Uh, Revelation is a very distinct form of writing, for instance. But most of it is written down in, in sort of a narrative, a driving a logical point, uh, or maybe just recording a history for us to understand, or simply unpacking and explaining the law as it's been given by God to his people. Psalms, though, is not po prose, Psalms is poetry, uh, and that may be somewhat obvious for us to declare, right? It, it's pretty simple for us to see how even the very structure in our Bible looks differently. It's not, you know, uh, justified margins on both sides. There are these weird indentations. This word sila appears a lot of times to recall us to stop and think and ponder upon what we've just read. Uh, there is, I, as I understand it, though I don't read it in the, in the Hebrew, uh, there are different uh, devices that are used in there. For instance, in Psalm 119, it's every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is reflected at the beginning of the, each one of those sections. Uh, there are rhymes that might come. There is a different meter that appears within the Psalms that we don't see in the Chronicles or certainly not in Leviticus and other places that are much more uh, delivering you information through a narrative. Psalms is poetry. And within the category of poetry, we see three different types of psalms. So, so we have the category of poetry, then we have these three specific types of poetry within the psalms. Uh, they are the hymn, the lament, and the song of thanksgiving. The hymn, the lament, and the song of thanksgiving. Let's unpack each one of those. When the psalmist uses the structure of a hymn, like we used to use in the hymn book, the hymn, we see an invitation to praise God, followed by a confession of the praiseworthy character of God, as well as his actions in creation. And then they typically conclude with some sort of reaffirmation of that faith, a renewed call to praise, to praise God again. So we, we see the structure of a hymn has praise, confession, and again, a renewed call to praise. And so what does that look like? Well, why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit here and try to keep up with me. My, my favorite thing in the world to hear, by the way, when you're teaching is the pages of Scripture flipping. It loses a lot of its fun when everybody looks on the phone because you don't get that same sort of page flipping sound that's so delightful to a teacher's ears. It's okay if you're using phone. I just like, the, I like to hear the pages of Scripture turning. It means you're with me. Psalm 8, we, we can see immediately on, at verse 1 how th this turns into a, a psalm or into, into a hymn. We see that praise at the outset in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You hear him exclaiming this, this praise of this majestic God. But as the passage continues through verse 8, we see a recounting of this praise of God, a confession of the qualities of his character that should move the people of God to praise him. This is sort of what you might call the logic that undergirds or the, the, the reasons for the praise that he's going to offer. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
We're talking about the vastness of God in this. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're finding out where we belong in the context of created order and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We're seeing the reasons why the psalmist is concluding that we ought to praise God, that we ought to, as he says in verse 1 again, to uh, declare how majestic is your name in all the earth. All these are the reasons why we ought to praise you for these things. And in the last verse, having confessed all the reasons that support and compel his praise of God, the psalmist concludes by renewing his call to the people to praise this God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so you have these satisfying bookends to this psalm, right? Calling you to praise how majestic the Lord is at the beginning, giving you the reasons why you ought to praise the Lord in the middle of the things, and then ending satisfyingly in a way to say how majestic your name is in all the earth. Go to Psalm 29. It follows a very similar structure to Psalm 8 as a hymn as well. David immediately urges the people to praise God as he opens the psalm in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It's as if the psalmist is at the very beginning, you know, kind of rousing people from the street, say, hey, 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 come here, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Hey, you over there, come over here, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Oh, heavenly beings, ascribe glory and strength. Praise him for what he is and for who he is. And he's kind of gathering people around to get us together in, in an act of praise. And then goes on through the middle passages of this chapter in verses 3 through 10. We hear him recounting the praiseworthy character of God, speaking of his power, of his majesty, his strength and the sovereignty over all of creation. And then he ends in verse 11 by once again calling on the reader to join in the, uh, the affirmation of this faith as applied to God's people. And he says again, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his, uh, his people with peace. And so the, these hymns provide us these lovely bookends of praise within the central figure, the central part of it, recounting the character and the actions and the behavior and the, the characteristics of our God. So as we read these hymns, we ought to follow a very similar pattern in our own devotional life. First, we should invite praise to God, whether that's inviting a congregation together like we're going to do in a few moments here. We're, we're going to have a very real call to worship, and we're going to begin to, to come together to praise our God. And it's the very first thing that we will be doing in our, in our acts of worship. But so also in our, in our simple private acts of meditation, we ought to instruct our own hearts to praise uh, this God that we have. And, and so in order to begin to move into that act of worship, we have to actually instruct ourselves. Hey, Praise this living God. It's almost as if we, we needed that kind of a jarring moment to remind us of what we're doing in this moment, to, to praise this God, for he's worthy of the praise that we are to offer to him. They then call us, uh, these hymns call for us to stop our focus on anything else that's demanding our attention in that moment and turn our heart, our mind, and our soul to focus upon praising God and in, in only praising God. And why would we praise God? Well, because of his character, his faithfulness, and his actions. We remind our soul, we instruct our soul of what God has actually done and who he is. And as we understand who our God is and meditate upon his faithfulness, well, how can we end but by praising our God, by affirming the faith we have in his covenant faithfulness to his people? It's a good reminder for us to just structurally go through these things. Hey, heart, praise God. Here's what he's done for us. Shouldn't that give you more praise? Absolutely. These are the ways that we instruct our, ourselves. And so the Psalms, as written down as hymns, provide us a lovely structure for us as a corporate body to praise and worship our God, but also in our individual worship, times of worship, to instruct our hearts and remind ourselves of his faithfulness to his people as we begin to praise God and worship him through the Psalms. The Psalms are also structured as a lament. Uh, laments are things that move, are, are poems that move from plea to praise or from the negative to the positive. These are very raw and very honest and oftentimes demanding psalms. They carry sort of a dark tone throughout the, the beginning portions of it all and crescendo into an end that is filled with light and hope. And, and so there's, there's some despair that you'll see in a lot of these, these, these laments at the beginning, but they always end, or they seem to end with a bright light, a, a hope at the end of it all. Uh, oftentimes the psalmist in the, in the laments will ask the question, why? And, and as he asks this question, why, you hear the psalmist pouring out his heart to God with 
sometimes brutally honest uh, questions that demand an answer. Look at Psalm 3 as an example. Uh, You can almost hear David crying in the background here, although he doesn't actually use the word why. You hear him in the background lamenting with the question why. He he laments in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Why, O Lord? Why do I have so many enemies? Why do people hate me all the time? Why doesn't anybody like me? Or that's, that's, that's a little too flippant, but you get this sense in the background that David is saying, why, why, why do these people hate me so much? And as he exclaims that these enemies target not only his life, but his very soul, they're taunting him to abandon his faith in God, falsely saying in verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. That's what his enemies are saying. They're, they're daring him to give up his salvation in God. But the bitter that you hear in that question why turns very quickly to sweet as David recounts the genuine salvation, the only salvation that is found in the God who is his shield, his physical protection, but also the only source of eternal salvation for his people. From the darkness of fear, anxiety, and depression, the psalmist ends in the light of the confidence, peace, and rest that is offered outside of himself and in the loving kindness of a sovereign king. Laments may also seek something from God. Uh, They they sometimes ask why, but they also sometimes provide a very concrete request that God do something, that he act. I'm going to go to Psalm 44 here in a second to illustrate this. But uh, the psalmist in these laments are are, are kind of demanding that God God act in some specific way. Uh, And so in Psalm 44, that illustrates this type of lament. You see in verses 9 through 16, the psalmist is recounting how he feels abandoned, almost punished and disgraced by God's judgment. Even if that judgment is just and right and good, it still has the feeling in our human lives, the psalmist says, of of being abandoned by God and punished by him and disgraced by his judgment. But it ends in verses 23 to 26 by calling upon God to come to his people's aid. He says, for the sake of your steadfast love. Come to my aid. Come to your people's aid. These are the types of laments that, I, that just have that feeling of presumption and demand. They don't sort of feel kind of the, the, the happy and, and um, uh, kind sort of notions of modern worship. Here you have a cre- creature demanding the creator, hey, act. Get up. Where are you? Why aren't you helping me here? I feel abandoned and alone. Act. Would you please Act. But by these laments, we're taught to to call upon God according to his character and his promises, to remind him of how he has has promised and how he has acted in the past. So when in a fallen world, we feel the pressures that are around us, this feeling of separation that is caused either by our sin or or, or something else around us, uh, we're not to seek out our self-salvation in the process. But we're to call upon the only God who is able to save us and ask him, in fact, to demand that he act according to his promises. So use the laments to confess our fears and our anxieties while reminding us that God can and he does ultimately save his people. And he is the only source of that salvation. It's not to be found anywhere else. Laments remind us of this and allow us that room to to ask the question why, and to make the demands of, that God act according to his purposes, recognizing that he will ultimately do so. Finally, the Psalms take on the form of songs of thanksgiving. And, and, and these are, are blessed Psalms for us to read. And I'm sure you each have your favorite Psalm or song of thanksgiving as well. They invite the reader to give thanks. And then they recite the trouble or the calls for help or the deliverance that they have faced by the psalmist and then concludes with a further expression of thanks. So it sounds a lot like the hymn, right? They kind of got these bookends of of thanks, some sort of recitation, and then thanks again. And that's true. Psalm 118 is the example for us here to look at. Psalm 118, uh, the first four verses exclaim thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then invites the entire congregation to to do likewise. Let Israel say, let Israel say, let Israel say. Thanks, uh, 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 give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Verses 5 through 27 of Psalm 118 then recount the distress that the psalmist faced how he felt surrounded by his enemies, the anxiety of death that faced him, and more, ending with a renewed call for thanksgiving that celebrates the personal history of redemption for him. He says this in verse 28, You 
are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That phrase appears over and over and over in the Psalms. There must be a reason why the Lord has inspired these men to write that phrase. We must need to hear that the, lo the love of the Lord is steadfast and enduring. Uh, these songs of thanksgiving, they, they echo parts of the lament, uh, you hear sort of that, that raw, gritty nature in there that I feel alone or abandoned or there's something going on in my life that I've had to face. And it also appears very similar to the hymns, calling for the praise and the echoing of the praise at the end. Uh, but they're both distinguished from, they're distinguished from both of those by the personal nature of the songs of thanksgivings. They, they recount not only God's faithfulness and sovereignty to his people throughout all time and the covenants that he's made with them, but also specifically to me as the individual. This is what you have done for me in these circumstances. Not just to your people, yes, that's true, we praise you for that, but also how it applies directly to me. So we ought to use these songs of thanksgiving as well to remind ourselves that the God who saved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the very same God who set his affection personally upon each and every one of us. That is something to be truly uh, resounding in praise from. So that's the, the type, the genre, the authors of the book. We know where it stands in Scripture. We know who wrote the, the Psalms in large part. We understand how the Psalms are kind of individually structured. What about the book itself as, as a whole? What, what, what is the book, what does that tell us? And how does it instruct our worship as, as a book itself? Well, it's, it's really a lament in five books. All right, so there's, there's kind of two different ways of of looking at the Psalms, or at least some have suggested it in this way to interpret how we, we look at this. Some suggest that the organization of the Psalms is as one long lament. It's, it's very heavily front-loaded, in fact, with actual laments themselves, uh, the types of poetry within it. And then it ends with these hymns of praise in the last sections. In fact, Psalm 150 is probably the best hymn in the entire uh, uh, catalog of the Psalms. Uh, and so in, it, in itself, it sort of takes on that darkness to light motif that, it, that, it, that, that a lament might have for us, moving from plea to praise as laments do. Uh, that's true and allows us to interpret the Psalms as moving from this suffering onto the glory. Uh, Luke 24, you'll remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection, he's talking to these two guys who have no idea who he is, and he recounts the Psalms to them, and he concludes by saying, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he does this after unpacking, by the way, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That's, that's what that, that tells us. And again, this is why we study the Old Testament and view it as a prologue to the gospel. They are actually, what did Jesus do to explain himself? He took these two guys back to the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms. Uh, it's a wonderful thing that he does that. But, but here we see the lament here, the suffering to glory, the plea to the praise, the dark to the light. Uh, and in this way, the Psalms anticipate the very life of Christ. And, and we can take courage from the portrait knowing that that suffering that we face right now in our day-to-day -day lives, well, that's not our destiny. It was not Christ's destiny to, to suffer only, but to ultimately receive the glory that his Father was going to provide him in, in the book of the Revelation. And so too, we ourselves as well, the glory of our redemption as sons and daughters of a living God awaits us. The, the present sufferings that we face, well, they're going to have to be faced. There's no way to get around some of those things in a fallen world. But that's not the ultimate. That's not ultimately what we're destined for. Instead, God has said, this is where we're going. We're going to have this glory one day as sons and daughters of a living God. We will reign as princes and princesses in the heavenly kingdom. Though we must suffer only a little while, ultimately we will result in the light of life with Christ. So we view the book of the Psalms as moving from lamentation to praise, and that's, that's very helpful. But within that, it's also helpful to understand sort of this physical structure of the book of the Psalms. And maybe this is just something that is, uh, for, for me as a lawyer, as I, as I divide things up and I try to structure arguments, I've got to have some sort of skeleton to hang things on, right? And maybe you're a teacher and my wife is teaching her kids how to read and write papers and all this kind of thing. You've you got to have an outline. You've you got to have something, uh, bones on which to hang the meat, the flesh of the argument itself. And so uh, the book of the Psalms is organized on a skeleton itself. Uh, and it's divided into five different books that uh, Professor Jim Hamilton suggests, I love this phrase, they sing the glory of God as his justice and salvation are accomplished through his Messiah. They sing the, the glory of God as his justice and salvation are accomplished through his Messiah. Book one 
Uh, it follows the prologue that is in chapters 1 and 2, and they provide the perspective by which we should interpret the entire book, which is a poetic meditation on the law, uh, the, the Torah that is set out in, in chapter 1 that points to the Messiah that is predicted in chapter 2 of the book of Psalms. So th- you view chapter 1 and 2 as sort of this prologue to the entire book. Book 1 goes from chapter 1 uh, all the way through the end of chapter 41. Uh, here's how you know, by the way, when you've, gone, you've reached the seam of each one of the books, there is a, 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 a doxology at the end of each one of these. Now, you know, of course, your modern translations of the scripture actually have Book two, right there, so if you haven't figured out where your book ends and starts, well, I can't help you. But if you don't have those modern uh, things in your scriptures, we have these doxologies. So look at uh, uh, chapter 41 of Psalms on verse 13. You'll see a very uh, good example of this. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, as if... Uh, the book, uh, you turn the page and it says the end or the end of part one. Or if you ever read a book and you finished a chapter, you turn the next page, it's just a blank piece of paper with, uh, with a part two, that, that the book two starts here, something like that. You see these in your books too. Well, the Psalms is a book of literature. And this is how they've, they've divided up the Psalms as well with these doxologies at the end of every section. Book one ends at the end of chapter 41. Um, each book closes with the doxology as well, uh, similar to verse 13 of chapter 1. Book 2 then starts in Psalm 42 and goes all the way through chapter 72. And this book is organized around the life of David as an agent for the coming Messiah. So, so 42 through 72 make up chapter or a book 2 of the book of Psalms, the five books of Psalms. Uh, and is pointing to David as sort of this intermediary, this, this uh, typified, typified person of the Messiah. It shows that while God was with David in every challenge and in every judgment, in the end, even David required salvation, which is why I think the book ends with the doxology uh, in chapter 72, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. David slayed his thousands and tens of thousands, right? But alone, God alone, the God of Israel alone does wondrous things. David is not even as good as the coming Messiah. Book 3 then travels from uh, uh, chapter 73 through chapter 89 as the kingdom begins to extend itself from David to his son Solomon. And very quickly you see things falling apart. Uh, As good as David was, his son was good, and then after that, things just kind of go off the rails, as we understand, throughout the rest of redemptive history and the nation of Israel having done so in the Old Testament. Uh, there, there's little hope that we see in the salvation through human kings in this third book of the Psalms. Rather, there's an impending judgment that's coming for the people's lack of faithfulness, and for specifically the lack of the faithfulness of the kings of Israel. Yet even in that coming judgment, book three paints a very good picture of hope. Uh, So we see in book three instruction for how to live in the face of this coming judgment. For the people of Israel, that means they're going to carry those psalms with them into the land of judgment, the land of exile. And for you and I, as we face the judgments that we're going to go through, we also carry these psalms and can be encouraged by them as we face the judgment that we can live in hope even in the face of the impending judgment. Book 4 then continues at chapter 90 and goes all the way through chapter 106 as the judgment falls on the people, instructing their faithfulness while in exile. Boy, is this applicable for us as, as people who are in the already but not yet phase of our lives, in the exiles, we await the return of the true and the greater Messiah than what was David. Uh, this book ends also in doxology, calling upon the people to praise the God of Israel, who is from everlasting to everlasting. I, I think it's deeply instructful that, that the psalmist would end it with that, from everlasting to everlasting. It doesn't matter what age you find yourself in, whether you're the Israelites that are on the way to Babylon, or you are Americans in 21st century uh, history, or if you are in the Middle Ages, from everlasting to everlasting, you ought to be praising the God of Israel, for he is the true Messiah. So stay faithful to his promises and his instructions wherever you might find yourself throughout any age of human history. That is the praise that you ought to be offering. That is the faithfulness you are called to live within. Finally, book five Uh, is from chapters 105 to 150, and these are just simply packed with hymns. Uh, They they instruct obedience for those who are awaiting the Messiah, ending perhaps with the most exalted hymn, calling upon the people to praise the Lord. 
in, in short, to kind of summarize this entire book structure, Mark Futato puts it this way. He says, books one through three raise the question, how do we live in the absence of the Messianic king? In books four to five, they answer the question in two ways, by faith and obedience. So where we learn in the first three books of uh, that, that, that there is an absence of a messianic king and, and certainly a poor imitation through David and Solomon and all the rest, we learn in books four to five how to live in faith and obedience to the Messiah that will reign over all things. Uh, so dividing the Psalms into these five books does more than just provide structure to the book itself. It's actually ordered to teach us how to experience the blessed life that is promised in Psalm 1 as we await the king who's promised in Psalm 2. That prologue becomes really, really important. We're, we're instructed how to experience the blessed life that Psalm 1 provides to us or, or tells us we are to, to achieve through the Torah, through the law, but that we do so in obedience as we await the promised king that's prophesied in Psalm 2 or talked about in Psalm 2. So as the book shows the failure of human kings like David, it also points to the unfailing nature of God himself all the way through. Where the Psalms announce an inevitable judgment of the people, it presents a hope for a lasting salvation that can be found only in Christ himself. As the psalmists encounter the evil that's around them in sin and death and in anxiety, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases for his people. So the, you should read the Psalms, yes, as individual meditations upon, on, upon Christ and that each points to, but you ought to see the entire beautiful structure as we, as we learn to live without any human king that is able to provide us the type of messiahship that we need, but we also live in faith and obedience to the king that is coming, the sovereign king of the universe, which is its own specific theme throughout the book of the Psalms, that there is a sovereign king, and that sovereign king is to come, and that his love is steadfast. It is never ceasing. It endures throughout every generation. So that gets us sort of the structural overview. We've, we found where it is in the entire canon of Scripture, that it's within the Old Testament itself, that inside of the Old Testament it actually occupies the, the area of the writings. And within the writings we find that is actual poetry, and that poetry is expressed through hymns and laments and songs of thanksgiving. And all of that is driving to one singular theme of the, the kingship of our Christ. It, this, this prologue within a prologue within a prologue of the gospel itself is witnessed on the pages of Scripture. Where the kings fail, we see a Savior who never fails where we have troubles that we can never get ourselves out of, we're called to, to call upon the one who is able to save to the uttermost uh, and to preserve not only our body but our very souls. And, and, and through the Psalms, we, we see over and over and over again the faithfulness of our God, commanding our faithfulness and our obedience to him as we live in the world that is, yet, uh, uh, that is not yet fulfilled by the, the present rule of Christ in his person. Uh, and so we are called to live during that time. L let, me add, let me end with three points that I hope are more devotional in terms of application for each of us. First, uh, let me encourage you to recite the laments of the Psalms, to re recite the laments. Uh, in, in other words, I want you to rehearse what the Lord has done in the life of his people. It, it's good for us to be reminded uh, whether that's just to ourselves or as a body together, to remind ourselves, rehearsing ourselves uh, with what the Lord has done in the life of his people. Thankfully, we live in 2022. We've got 2,000 years of New Testament history in which to rely, and, and many more before that, that we can talk about God's faithfulness throughout many, many generations. We, we need only look to our present age and see uh, people in this room and parents and grandparents that are otherwise have lived faithfully, but we can go all the way back to Moses and indeed all the way back to Adam to see over and over again how God has been faithful to his people, all the work that he has done in the life of his people, and as you rehearse these uh, what the Lord has done, and as you feel the pressure of the anxieties of this world, then I think you should also take from the, the, uh, the laments the, the boldness that you have to ask God to meet those anxieties. David certainly felt willing to, to demand upon God that he meet certain needs. He, he felt the freedom to ask God, why am I facing all these things? But he also did all of that within the understanding of what God has done for his people. The character of the God that has loved his people throughout all history and been faithful to them, that the steadfast love of the Lord has never ceased at any time. 
And so that allows us to be able to come to our God and say, why is this happening to me? But at the same time, I know, God, you have a purpose for this whole thing. And so I will end this with praise because I have a hope that is coming in our Savior. You should recite the laments. We should recite the laments in our own devotional lives. Second, I want to invite you to invite thanksgiving. Uh, Songs of thanksgiving strengthen our hearts when we are the most discouraged, when we're the most alone or afraid and overwhelmed. You should use them not only to strengthen the hearts of your fellow pilgrims. I like it that the songs of thanksgiving sort of have this, hey, come here effect of each other. Hey, come here together. We're in this all together. Let's thank the Lord together. Let me tell you why we should thank the Lord. Or shouldn't we thank the Lord together? Let's thank the Lord together. It has this grouping of, that is out there that we ought to be moving one another towards. But it also, it also is good for us to say, hey, heart, I know you're downtrodden. I know you feel alone. I know you feel alone. Thank God. Encourage the pilgrims beside you, yes, but steady your own heart with the use of the songs of thanksgiving. They're given to us for that very specific purpose in our lives, corporately and individually. Strengthen your own heart. I'm going to guess most of you have a story very similar to the one I'm going to tell you, but a couple years ago, Jenny had a routine, routine, but a pretty substantial operation at the same time, and in the recovery, her blood pressure was slow to stabilize and and the pain, maybe it was just we were tired and, and immature, I don't know, but I think it was actually that we were stressed out and it was painful and things were rough. It was more than we had anticipated. And in, in the night that followed, as her blood pressure kind of goes up and down, uh, the, the jerk that you guys know most of me to be uh, turned into a much more um, a vulnerable person. And I was sad and I was weak during those times. And I was hurt. She was completely strong, physically otherwise, but in her spirit, I think she was much more... Uh, strengthened than I was. Uh, but during the, the, the darkness of that night, w- literal darkness as well as kind of the emotional darkness, uh, w- we were in fear. We were hurting in that evening. And, and we're in the hospital together, and she's in her bed, and I'm on that terribly uncomfortable couch they put in there, trying to get any kind of rest at all. Uh, I, we did what I'm sure many of you have done. We, we turned to the Psalms. We opened them up, and it didn't matter. <clears throat> it didn't really matter where we went in the Psalms. It was the fact that the Psalms were there. And that they're instructing our hearts to praise our God. They're getting us through those dark moments and reminding us that that no matter what happens in this life, that our God sits on the throne. And that he's going to bring us through those dark nights and into a much more indescribable glory than anything we could face on this side of eternity. Use the songs of thanksgiving to invite one another to praise our God, to thank him for what he's done for us to recount all the ways he's been faithful to us, do so to instruct our hearts individually, but also together. And finally, I I want to give you one final challenge that has been especially impactful to to our family here, and I I hope will be the same to you. I want you to to pray all of the Psalms, but especially the hymns. Uh, Praying God's word back to him allows us to apply the character of God to our daily life. He he loves to hear his, his word spoken back to him. So about a year ago, our family decided that we would pray through the Psalms, and we, we just decided each night, as we, we have an evening of reading as a family together, and, and after we'd finished that, whatever book it was that we were reading, we would then open up a, a psalm and take one psalm per night, or maybe even a portion of a psalm per night. We didn't take Psalm 119 all in one bite. Uh, that, that we broke that up by alphabet. Uh, but we would take the psalms and just read through them verse by verse. We would read through the entire psalm first, and then we would go back through it and allow each of the verses to guide our prayers that evening. And, and it, it, you'll be amazed if you do this, how many times God brings the needs of others to mind in those psalms. Hey, I know so-and-so is going through that darkness of night, and I can pray for that person. Or, you know, this is convicting me of how I'm living myself right now, and I need the instruction of uh, these scriptures here. And, and I need to be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. And it repeated over and over and over again to us. This, this wonderful balm that comes across us because of these scriptures. And so I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Uh, Mark Ritchie, some years ago in our retreat, talked about praying through the scriptures. And I'm telling you, there is something beautiful to this. We, we've now, we went through all 150 of the Psalms. It took us, what, eight months or something like that to get through. Uh, now we're into Proverbs, and I can tell you that the Psalms are a lot easier to pray than the Proverbs are, but all of Scripture is able to be prayed back to our God. And I'm telling you, I'm begging you, I'm challenging you to go and do this. Make this a part of your individual devotion, or make it a part of your family life. Your kids could be 18, or they could be 4 years old. They will benefit from you speaking out these 
pieces of scripture and praying with them, modeling to them how to pray these psalms. Uh, and so I, I want to challenge you to do the same thing. We can use all of the scriptures this way, but the psalms are particularly great on this. So next week I'm going to teach on Psalm 27. And so to anticipate that and to get us moving in that direction, let's pray through Psalm 27 as we end our time together. Uh, this will be sort of a, a model of how to do this, uh, inept as it may be, but also it'll be a good way for us to get a running start into our week next week in Psalm 27, but also a good way to conclude our time this morning praying through this psalm, Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire uh, in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Oh God, you are our light and our salvation. And if you are the light and the salvation of our lives, why would we fear anything? And so in those moments when we are afraid of whatever it is, of sickness or of disease, of, of uh, economic pressures, or uh, trying to figure out how to walk in this uh, life faithfully, we should never fear. For you are our light and our salvation. You will whisper behind us, this is the way, walk therein. You have already provided our salvation. And so, Father, you will guide, guide us along the way. You are the stronghold of our life. We can seek refuge within you. We don't need to be afraid of anyone or anything. For what does this life matter? You are the stronghold of our life and our salvation. Our ultimate destiny is not here in this world, but in eternity with you. So when evildoers assail me, when they eat up our flesh, when they try to oppose us and be adverse to us, they are the ones who are going to stumble and fall because you have ordained it be so. Even though we see that they have some success even now, and we don't feel very successful in our, ourselves, you are yet superintending through your entire divine plan to bring all things according to, uh, to the good, according to Christ Jesus, for those who are called according to your purposes. And so, Father, we ask that as evildoers assail us, that they would not eat up our flesh, that they would not be our adversaries and foes, but instead that you would confound them and cause them to stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, that my heart shall not fear. Uh, many people can come against us, Father. We are greater than all the armies of this world put together, and but for a moment we could ask that the, the angels of heaven themselves come down and defeat those who encamp against us. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. They can't see the army behind us, Father, but we know you are behind us, that you are above and beyond us, that you go ahead of us and prepare the way for us, and ask that you would give us the confidence that comes with knowing you are our salvation. And so, Father, if we can ask even for one thing, that we would, would seek after you, above all the things we might have, we ask that we would be able to dwell in your house all the days of our lives. Even though you give us housing in this world to protect us from the elements, we know that our ultimate house is a better home with you in eternity. And so we ask, Father, that we would one day, even soon, be allowed to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Oh, that we would have the curtain removed and that we would be able to see you face to face and present to you our praises to your face, that that day would come soon, Father, that that would come uh, today, that we might see you face to face, that we'd be removed from the cares of this world and instead be with you in eternity forever. 
You have promised to hide us in your shelter in the day of trouble. And so as the trouble comes to us, Father, would you shelter us and protect us? Would you conceal us under the cover of your tent that is strong, that you lift us high upon a rock above the fray, that we would be above all the action that is below us, that you would instead protect us and cover us and, and, and guide us through the, the trouble? Uh, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies and around me. We will be victors over all these things. You have lifted us up as triumphant. Uh, we will offer in your tent because of the salvation that you provide to us. We will offer to you our sacrifices with shouts of joy. Let us not be quiet as we praise you, Father, but may we praise you with shouts of joy. May we sing and make melody to the Lord, even if we do so off pitch. May, may our praises bring to you a glorious sound that is pleasant in your ear because you are worthy of our praise. Father, hear us when we cry aloud. Be gracious to us and answer us. Don't let us feel like we are far off. Uh, remove the sin from our lives that's, that gets in the way and causes us to feel abandoned and alone. And uh, uh, we are a long ways away from you. So we have to cry aloud to be heard, but instead be near us. Allow us to seek your face as you have promised that we could. Let our hearts hear, uh, hear our hearts when they say, we, we seek your face, but we feel like you are hidden from us. Don't turn away from us, God, in anger. Be gentle to us, for we are weak. Instead, Father, you have been our help, and cast us not off. Don't forsake us, O God of my salvation, because if you were to forsake us, to whom would we turn? Our father and our mother, all those around us that love us the very most, they've forsaken us, but you have promised to take us in. Let all the world forsake us, Father, yet you alone take us in, and we will be satisfied. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. We don't understand your way. We need to be taught your way, Father. That is not something we come to naturally as, as fallen humans. We need guidance. We need instruction. So, Father, we ask that uh, you would instruct us, but at the same time that you would hold our hand and lead us along the way, that we would walk in the face of our enemies, not despite them, but even in front of them on a level path towards the, uh, the direction you would have us go. Don't allow us to fall into the hands of our adversaries. Uh, they speak falsely against us. They, they rise against us, and they breathe out violence towards us. And we see this all around the world from, your, uh, from uh, the persecuted church that is facing real physical threats across the globe to uh, ideological threats that are even breathed out here against people of faith. God, we ask that you would silence the will of the adversaries, that they would have their false witness shown bare to the rest of the world, that you would be proven right and all the rest of the world a liar, because of what you have said, we pray, God, that you would not give us up to the will of our adversaries, but instead that you would silence those who breathe out threats of violence against us. And yet, Father, instruct our hearts. We believe that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Uh, and let this not be something that is just simply written on the pages of Scripture that we read and we forget about, but that we will actually look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living, and so let that motivate our daily lives. May we be encouraged by the fact that we will one day look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And yet still, Father, we have to wait for this. And so we ask, Father, for the patience to wait for the Lord. And in the process of waiting, give us the strength to be able to wait. Give us the courage in our hearts to wait. But let us ultimately be patient as we wait for the Lord. This is the promised King, the Messiah that has come and is coming again. And so, Father, we ask again that you would come quickly, that we would see you face to face and live with you, gazing upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In this we say, Father, amen and amen and amen.